Thank you, Father Ephraim, and thank you to everyone here who uh, fills this gym tonight very safely, you know, physically distanced. It's good to see you all. I'm certainly grateful to the Thomistic Institute uh, and to St. Charles uh, community here for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be with you all. We gather tonight just two weeks away from our nation's presidential election, and so politics and the presidency and governments and the American experiment and, and voting in particular, these are realities that if we would like to ignore them for a bit, we simply can't. I mean, the, the culture at the moment in terms of news, but also at work and schools, everywhere, the public square is saturated with the question of the election. And as I guess should take place every few years when we do have an election, the question of voting comes up. And the encouragement for the populace to vote. We're all encouraged to vote. Both sides of the political aisle have their own programs, right, to get out the vote, to encourage people to get involved, to show up on election day and vote. It's interesting, this election cycle, I don't remember voting itself being front and center as it is now, because we have, as part of the debate regarding the election and the presidency, debates about voting itself and how it should be done. Early, on the day of, absentee, by mail, in person, the ways of voting have just proliferated this year, in large part due to COVID, but I think if you look back at previous election cycles, or just at the series of the last several election cycles, there's been a movement to expand the opportunity for the citizenry to vote, again, as a way of encouraging more and more people to vote. But in all of this encouragement, and regardless of whether we've ourselves decided to vote or how to vote, have we stopped to ask ourselves, what are we voting for? not in terms of what policy or what person I want to support with my vote, but what are we voting for? What is the purpose of voting? Why is this such a sacred tradition in the American Republic and in the American experience and indeed in the American political imagination? Why is it good to vote? What are we doing when we vote? That's the question I'd like to ask tonight and over the next few minutes to help to answer. At the end, we'll have time for question and answer. But tonight, I'd like to talk about the nature, the purpose, and the good of voting. The goal will be not to identify whom or what to vote for, especially in two weeks, but rather, how do we vote well? I think it's an important question for us, not just to in, be encouraged to vote, to encourage others to vote, to vote ourselves, but how do we vote well? Just to say, how do we vote virtuously? Tonight we'll use or rely on the wisdom of Aquinas as touchstone for our conversation. We'll allow him in his own doctrine of prudence and justice to be our guide. Now, that might be counterintuitive, especially for us as you know, late moderns and 
the American Republic 240 years into our own democratic experiment, what does a 13th century Italian Dominican friar have to teach us about voting and democracy and living virtuously in democracies? Anybody want to take a stab at that, actually? Why, why rely on Aquinas at all? Why, why would we even think of looking at Aquinas as a guide for these questions? Raise your hand if you have an idea. Yeah. Right, so that's a good answer, which is to say that Aquinas is a master of the relation of faith and reason. And insofar as, let's say, in the public square, we're uh, required to, uh, to exercise reason. We want to vote prudently, vote justly. Uh, as Christians, too, the, the reality of faith should bear you know, some, somewhat on, on the choices we make at, uh, in the voting booth. And therefore, Aquinas can, can be a guide for us in negotiating those questions of faith and reason and how to, how to express that uh, even in our own day. There's an insight there that Aquinas has perennial wisdom here. It's not just wisdom from the 13th century. He's not speaking directly to his own context, but articulates some universal truths that, that find reality and application uh, in other times, in other places, including our own. Any other ideas or guesses as to why Aquinas would be a good guide for this kind of discussion? Mm -hmm. Right. So there's a, a recognition that when we read Aquinas in the Summa, especially in the questions of justice, that he's not speaking explicitly or even directly to uh, political realities in his own day. He's a student of human nature, first and foremost. Uh, well, a student of the scriptures, but as a way to read the scriptures better, also a student of human nature to see how it is that grace and truth uh, prevail uh, as, as true realities, saving realities, in each and every life, again, not just in 13th century Italy or France, but for the human person uh, considered generally. Applicable to people who came before him and truths that are applicable to people who come after him. Those are good answers, and I think they're both uh, true and give us some insight as to why Aquinas is a reliable guide here. But let me offer a third, which is to say Aquinas was a Dominican. The Dominican order remains in the church today one of the more democratic religious orders in the church. Father Ephraim can tell you, we spend a whole lot of our common life arguing <laughs> about our life, which is to say that, yes, we have superiors in uh, Dominican life. I happen to be one of them. But I know, certainly as a superior, uh, I am not uh, a benevolent potentate <laughs> that... Uh, that we have within our governing structure the community, which gathers in chapter. Chapter is for us the deliberative body that sets policy, sets governance. And the superior, in cooperation with the chapter, comes to certain decisions about our common life, and then it's up to the superior then to implement those decisions. But decisions which are, by and large, decisions of the community, which are expressed and arrived at through discussion, through debate, and once discussion and debate is over, through voting. We Dominicans vote a lot in our own community, at the provincial level, even at the international level. There's all kind of voting that takes place all the time. So as 
Whereas Aquinas himself is a, an Italian teaching in France in the mid 13th century who came under kings and emperors, local dukes, and certainly when you read his writings, you know, he's in contact with all of them. He, as a member of his political society at the time, didn't have the franchise, didn't have or exercise uh, any kind of vote. Aquinas voted often as a Dominican. He knew something of democracy and democratic life you know, as a Dominican. And I think if we appreciate that about his own particular personal and religious life, when you read him, when he talks about justice, and he talks about governance, and he talks about sovereignty, and the exercise of prudence for the common good, I think you can discern certain aspects of his teaching that reflect his experience within the order. Monarchy was certainly the prevailing political regime in his day, but he speaks about other possibilities, and he has a certain understanding about the sovereignty of the populace, the sovereignty of the citizenry that even in monarchy has to be recognized and in a sense obeyed. Now we, beginning in 1776, developed our own American way of expressing that truth about we the people and the people's exercise in sovereignty, and that's what certainly shapes you know, our conversation tonight. Trying to come to an understanding of what voting is in our own particular political context. But again, I think we can rely upon Aquinas as a guide here to help us understand what we're doing as American citizens when we go into the voting booth. To begin to read Aquinas and his doctrine of justice, I think we have to understand that he has a particular vision of the human person that's active and dominant in his own reflections on politics and justice. He has a certain understanding of who the citizen is, who both obeys law, obeys authority, but also works together with others for the building up and the preservation of the common good. Aquinas, unlike ourselves, had a view of the human person that allowed really for no form of strict individualism. To read Aquinas on justice is to read, to to realize, or hopefully to, to understand that for him, the human person is the political animal that Aristotle had described centuries before. That man by nature is a political animal. And what does that mean? Well, man by nature is social. That means that there's no moment in his historical existence there's no moment in the life of any man or woman where he or she exists as a mere individual. The human person always and everywhere exists naturally and ineluctably in relationship with others. Every human person comes into being as the child of a mother and father, and every human being comes into existence as belonging to some political community. 
those two societies, the society of the family and the society of the city, were simply for Aquinas inescapable. To be human is to be a member of a family and to be a member of a city. And that's important to realize that when Aquinas talks about justice, when he talks about politics, when he talks about the prudence necessary for our not just individual but social flourishing, he has this view of the human person in mind, which is very different from our own. We tend to prize individuality. We think that it's a perfection of ourselves to be unrelated to others, to be independent, self-reliant. That it's a sign of weakness, perhaps, to have to rely on the cooperation of others even to achieve the simplest goods. For Aquinas, that is a false view of the human person. That the human individual flourishes even in the acquisition and enjoyment of the most basic goods always and everywhere in relation with others, as the member of a family, as the member of a political community. And therefore, human life is shaped inherently by the pursuit of the common goods of the family and of the city, the goods that individuals share among themselves as members of a particular family, the common good that individuals share commonly as members of a political community or a city. The man is, by nature, part of a family, part of a city. By grace, he's also part of a church, yet another, another society that's, in a sense, natural to the human person, not because it stems from nature, but because God has created it as a kind of society established by grace. So just looking at myself, I see that my identity is quite complex. I'm not just Aquinas Gilbo, full stop. I'm also, besides just being myself, I'm the son of my father and mother. I'm the brother of my siblings, a native of Louisiana, a resident now of the District of Columbia, a priest in the Catholic Church, a professed member of the Dominican Order, prior of a Dominican community, and a professor in a Episcopal faculty. Those parts of my identity identify all of the very societies that I belong to. Some by nature, my family, my political community, but others by choice, the church, the Dominican order, the pontifical faculty. That's just one example, just looking at myself, of seeing how complex individual identity is because of the many societies that we belong to, again, by nature and by choice. And that my own individual good is wrapped up in cooperating with others who belong to those societies in the achievement of the goods of those societies. And in fact, if we think long and hard about it, we realize that's what most of life is taken up with. Working with others, attaining common goods of particular societies in which even we as individuals flourish. So there's never a moment when the good of my family and the good of my city cease being so good for me. They remain my higher and better good, even as I continue to pursue my own particular goods. 
And this has everything then to do with understanding what it is that we do in life, how do we, is that we understand even daily activity. For Aquinas, there is no such thing as a purely isolated act that I perform simply on my own and for my own good in such a way that it has no bearing upon any other person or not just for any other person, but that doesn't in some way either help or hinder their pursuit of their goods individually and also commonly. Every act that we perform is the act of a person related to family and to city. And therefore, every act contributes to my rendering the due to some other. And for that reason, Aquinas concludes, every act that we undertake serves justice. There's no act that we perform that falls outside of the perfecting work of justice. Even the acts that we think that we undertake in secret, in private, as isolated individuals, they in some way bear on others as a help or a hindrance to their being given or obtaining their own due. So every act that we undertake is an act of justice. So when we look at the question of justice then, so with this view of the human person in the background, we can appreciate how for Aquinas, justice is not simply a question of rendering the other his due. That's certainly for Aquinas still the basic definition of justice, to render the other his due. But the way that this is lived out, day in, day out, is within a complex relationship or complex network of expressions of justice that are distinct from one another. So let's take a look here. We'll just draw a little graph here. So you have, let's say, at the top of a pyramid here, we'll draw the political community itself, and it's represented by the political authority. But of course, the political authority itself is not the community. The community itself is constituted of parts, members, individuals. And so let's just represent them. One here, one here. And this is incredibly and grossly oversimplified, but just so we can depict it on, uh, on the board here, you can imagine that there are dozens, even hundreds of other individuals that we can list here, but just for the sake of ease, uh, representing the community in this way. Aquinas notes that when justice is lived out in the political community, there are at least three different expressions of justice based on who is the object of the act of justice. So on the one hand, you have the whole represented by the political authority, and then the parts of the society, the various individuals. One way that justice runs is that the individual owes what is due to the political community. It's the part rendering the whole what is its due. And so justice runs in this direction. And that's what Aquinas calls general or legal justice. 
This is justice in its simplest, basic, most precise sense. It's the heart, it's the part rendering the whole its due. It's what the citizen owes to the whole of society. Not the only expression, but one, the most basic. Another way that justice runs within the political community is that it's the whole itself, the political community, rendering what's due to individual citizens, or the whole rendering what's due to the part. And it runs this way. And that's what we call distributive justice. This is the work of the whole represented by the political authority, the regime, the government, in its own work, qua government, ensuring that individuals, the individual citizens, the parts of the whole, have proper and equitable access to the good of the whole. And on the one hand, that can mean real distributions of common, commonly held goods to the different members according to their own particular need. So education systems, markets, uh, things like this, the political authority has some control over to make sure that access to those goods uh, is, in a sense, distributed equitably. So that's two sides of the triangle so far. General justice is the part rendering the whole its due. Distributive justice is the whole rendering the part its due. And then you have the day-to-day -day exchanges that take place between the parts, between individuals, between citizens in the political community, and this is what we call commutative justice. Again, these are all the exchanges that take place between parts, and our, the economic life of a political community is made up of these kinds of exchanges. I need a pair of tennis shoes. I also have $20. You have a pair of tennis shoes. You need $20, you know. And we, we come up with some kind of you know, agreement and exchange regarding value, price. Uh, I mean, that's what happens in, in basic bartering economies, but ours, you know, market economies and things like that are a little more complex, where prices are set by manufacturers. Consumers come, you know, ready to pay those prices. There can be some bartering, but it's mostly established you know, and more, more complex and just the scale of market economies compared to, to market economies, very different. But those are the kinds of exchanges that Aquinas has in mind here in describing commutative justice. And they're not just economic exchanges, they're any kind of exchange that takes place between two persons. Aquinas has the sense that every encounter, one person to another, some kind of debt is created for which some kind of rep, uh, recompense is, is, is to be given. You know, the two of us are walking into a building together, you hold the door open for me, I'm indebted to you in some way. And what do I owe? At least gratitude. And what do I do? I say thank you. You say you're welcome. That's a commutative exchange, a virtuous one. You know, that builds up the good of the whole because it's two individuals, two parts, relating justly one to another. So when we look at justice then, and we try to comprehend what Aquinas has to say about justice, we have to take a look at the whole. At any time one individual renders another individual 
his due, it has a bearing upon the whole because the individual here, on both sides of the equation, belongs to any number of societies of which he represents and part of his identity. But the individual on both sides of the simplest exchanges are also members of their political communities, the objects of distributive justice, and the subjects of general justice. And that has a bearing upon how the parts interact one to another, even, again, in the most simple and basic commutative exchanges. So again, the social and the political nature of the human creature, the human individual, comes to bear. Is that the, remains at the forefront of this understanding of justice. So at every commutative exchange, something of legal and distributive justice comes to bear, and every distributive you know, act of justice, commutative and legal, come to bear in every act of legal justice. In the background lie the realities of distributive and commutative exchanges. Hopefully that stretches our imagination a little bit, because that's not typically how we think uh, of justice, at least writ large for ourselves. For us as moderns, justice is almost entirely exhausted by economic exchanges, or if we think of justice, we might think of things like the justice system, the criminal justice system, you know, in, in particular. But this is what Aquinas has in mind in the background, and so when he's thinking about the virtue of justice and how an individual acts justly. It's within this network of different kinds of just exchanges that help to determine how justly and virtuously he lives. That's not the end of the picture, however. There's another virtue another cardinal virtue that comes into play when we think about the individuals living virtuously, and that's the virtue of prudence. If justice is an overarching virtue for Aquinas, meaning that every action that we undertake is in some way an act of justice, because in some way it either in fact renders or prepares us to render the other his due, prudence also is one of these overarching virtues, that there's no act that we undertake that is not an act of prudence. It's not the result of our own deliberation, choice, and command of the means to some end. And so in every act of justice, in every exchange that takes place, in every rendering of another his due, we do so prudently, which is to say, we don't just undertake the just act, but we try to do so in a way that's appropriate to time, to circumstance, we do so prudently. We try to avoid danger you know, in fulfilling what's due to another, rendering what's due to another. We try to foresee what the consequences are of our rendering the due now, as opposed to maybe tomorrow or next week. Now, there are all kinds of considerations that go into how to render the other his due well, which is to say prudently. And when we look at prudence, then, Aquinas sees the same kind of thing. Just in terms of the complexity of justice, there's also a certain complexity to prudence, that in each of these exercises of justice, a different 
what he says species, or let's say form of prudence, comes to bear. Now, the most basic kind of prudence emerges here. So we can just simply call it prudence in commutative exchanges. Just kind of general, simple prudence is what we need in those acts of justice where one individual renders another individual his due, where part acts justly toward part. But in terms of general or legal justice, where the individual, the citizen, renders what's due to the whole, to the political community, a different kind of prudence emerges, and that's what Aquinas calls political prudence. And here the real question, which is different from exercising commutative justice, the questions of prudence that come up here under general illegal justice and political prudence is how do I basically follow the law well? Insofar as law establishes the just mean for the individual rendering the whole what's due, what's required of the good citizens, not just a blind obedience or blind conformity to law, but a prudent one, an educated one, an intelligent one, the one that takes account of circumstance, that looks intelligently at one's circumstances, and again, through deliberation and choice and command, follows the law, again, intelligently, wisely, prudently. So in a way that doesn't obtain here, in political prudence, questions arise again. How do I render the whole what's due well and prudently? How does the citizen follow the law as a good citizen? How does he render the whole political community what is due to it? And in so doing, sharing in the good of the whole. And on the other side of the graph here, in terms of distributive justice, yet a third form of prudence arises, and this is the prudence of the political authority in making decisions about how to distribute the good of the whole equitably to all of the parts. And this is what Aquinas calls regnant of prudence. It's the prudence of the regent, or of the king, or the ruler, the one who exercises authority. Aquinas's point in identifying these different kinds of prudence is to show that in rendering justice, different kinds of questions come up depending on where you are within society. That there are questions and prudence that come up for the authority that don't come up for the subject or the citizen. There are questions that the authority has to ask and also answer well in order to organize and coordinate the activity of the individuals within society that the individuals or the parts of the society don't at least ask first in terms of their rendering you know, legal justice or political prudence. So Aquinas just recognizes that rulers and citizens play different roles within society. And being a virtuous member of society toward the common good is different from the coordination of the activity of a society toward the common good. Individuals and the authority, citizens and elected officials 
play different roles. They ask different questions. They, in a sense, achieve different goals for the flourishing of the whole political community. And this comes out then in there being a distinction in the prudence that they exercise. So all of this, I think, is background for then looking at the question of voting. And this is where I think Aquinas can help illuminate what it is that we as citizens in a modern democracy are doing in the voting booth. When we look at the structure of justice, when we look at the three kinds of justice, general, distributive, and commutative, and when we look at the three kinds of prudence, regular prudence, political prudence, and regulative prudence, where does the voter emerge here? What kind of justice is he exercising in the voting booth? And therefore, what kind of prudence, what virtue, what expression of prudence is required of the voter? To understand democracy, I think we have to understand how, as a regime, democracies, through the franchise, through the right to vote, democratic regimes extend the opportunity to share governance among as many people as possible, at least among those qualified within that regime to vote. And in voting there, you have an exercise of the collective sovereignty of the people. And this is what we do when we have elections, right? Questions are put to the people to settle, sometimes, at least in terms of policy questions. Tax rates for you know, local villages in towns, for example, zoning laws, you know, approval for that, even at the most local level. Mostly, though, the franchise is exercised in democratic societies to elect leaders, to choose leaders for ourselves who exercise distributive justice with, hopefully, <laughs> the required regulative prudence to do so. But in the voting boom, you know, where does the voter find himself here? I don't think we want to say that voting is an act of general or legal justice, which again is how it is best that the individual or the part of the whole follows the law towards the flourishing of the whole. Because that's not exactly what the voter is doing in the booth. It might be what the voter is doing driving to the poll by following traffic laws, but it's not what he's doing in the booth itself in pulling the, the lever in exercising a choice that has bearing upon the political whole. It's not just commutative justice, because that's just an exchange between individual and individual, part and part. There's no exchange in that sense in the act of voting. If we understand voting then as a real act of sovereignty by the individual citizen exercising his part in the sovereignty of the people, then I think we begin to see that the act of voting falls on this side of the network of justice, that there's a real decision being made by individual citizens on how it is that the political authority is exercised for them. In fact, it is an exercise of political authority, at least in that moment, in choosing leaders who then, in representing the people, 
exercise that authority more regularly on a daily basis for a given term on behalf of the people. So if we see that voting is falling on this side of the equation in terms of distributive justice, then the kind of prudence required by the voter is this one, regnative prudence. Which is to say that in the voting booth, the prudence necessary to vote well, again, not just in choosing the right person, not in choosing the right policy, but in casting that vote virtuously, what is the person deciding? More precisely, what is the voter knowing? And more importantly, what is the voter loving when he votes? Aquinas through the distinctions of prudence here, and if we identify regulative prudence as that which is necessary for the voter, we see that what the voter then has in view in the voting booth is not simple following of the law, not simple rendering another individual his due, but acting as the political authority for the good of the whole. And so what's required then in the voting booth is that kind of prudence where the person is casting his vote not with his own particular good in view, not just deciding what would be best for me in choosing this particular policy or this particular candidate, kind of hoping that 51% of the voters that same day have the same particular interest. Aquinas would help us to see, or encourage us to see, that there's a view of the good of the whole that the voter has to have in mind, in view, in love, and act virtuously as the authority in that moment providing for the good and the flourishing of not just oneself as a particular part of the whole, but for all the parts in the whole. And so the prudence required in this exercise is not general or political, but regnative, which is, on the one hand, a way of appreciating what it is that democracies take upon themselves and allowing for wide exercise of sovereignty by the people, but also puts the onus on the people to be a kind of citizenry, a kind of society that collectively can exercise society rightly, uh, sovereignty rightly for itself on behalf of the whole. You think back to yesterday's gospel, we heard Christ's teaching, his clever teaching, in regard to the Pharisees and challenged about the temple tax. The Lord responded to them by saying that all of us ought to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but unto God what is God's. Certainly that's the case when we exercise general and legal justice. It's also the case somewhat when we exercise commutative justice. But in the act of voting, which requires regulative prudence, we're not simply rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's. In a real way, we become Caesar. In a very limited way, but in a way shared with all of the other voters that day, the citizenry becomes Caesar. Acting prudently, 
making sovereign decisions for itself in regard to the questions put before them. And that puts a lot of requirements then on the voter, demands a lot of the voter. The primary focus of the voter then is not, as I said before, on his own particular good, but on the common good, the good of the whole. That's what he has to have in view in the voting booth. Ultimately, that's what he has to love in the voting booth, even to the point of perhaps sacrificing something of his own particular good in choosing a policy or a candidate that might not be great for his own particular interest, but would be instead good for the flourishing of the whole. I think those are the kinds of things that Aquinas, in appreciating his doctrine of justice, appreciating his doctrine of prudence, which has behind it this robust anthropology, seeing the human person, the human creature as inherently political, inherently social. This is how we might understand the awesome responsibility that we have as citizens in a democracy to vote, the very act that we're encouraged to exercise in just two weeks' time. So in our own prayer and reflection on the, on the, the election coming up, certainly we can ask the Holy Spirit for inspiration, guidance, illumination, helping us to expand our own understanding of what the United States is as a political community, as a social whole, what its good is, how we fit into it, how our particular good is involved and taken up into that common good, and then how as citizens we're to act in regard to that whole, to the good of the whole. Again, not thinking just of ourselves as if we were mere individuals, but as parts of the whole, exercising sovereignty for the whole. Certainly in our prayer, too, we might ask for Aquinas' own intercession for the illumination and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Again, to live as, to act as, to be virtuous as the social and political beings that we are being made in the image and likeness of God. What do I end there? And I know we've probably got some time for questions. I think several have come up. But thank you for your attention and attendance. Thank you. Does anyone have any questions? Yes, um, I just wanted to ask your opinion on why uh, Christians who are exercising regulative prudence um, have such different views of the common good. Mm -hmm. Sure. So the question is, yeah, uh, you had the mic, that's good, so everybody heard. So how is it that Christians uh, can have, uh, in exercising their prudence, you know, in the voting booth or in any kind of political activity, have different views? Uh, simply because there are many ways of achieving, you know, a, a common goal, right? Uh, that for any given end that we might want to achieve individually or even uh, socially, uh, there are many means to get there. 
you know, many possibilities. And that's what prudence helps us to work out individually, right? I mean, I have a goal that I want to achieve. Example I use in class, it's, you know, your mother's birthday is coming up. How is it that you want to celebrate your mother's birthday? Well, you have an intention to celebrate your mother's birthday, but just wanting to isn't doing it. What do you do? Well, you start to deliberate. Well, what are the different ways in which you can celebrate your mother's birthday? Take her out to dinner, get her a gift, give her a phone call, you know, gift certificate to a day spa. I mean, all these kinds of things. You know, you, you're going to work them out in your mind, and then you move to another step where you actually have to make a choice about which is the most appropriate, right? Which will be best, you know, given the possibilities of achieving that goal. And then you have to command that act. You know, just deliberating and choosing is still not doing anything about it until you command and will engages, you get up and you do the things necessary to fulfill the means and that's how you achieve uh, the goal. The same thing obtains in politics. You know, a, a political community can set for itself any number of goals. And for each of those goals, you might have umpteen possibilities of getting there. And they may all be good. But from different people, from different perspectives, some are going to seem more prudent you know, than others in the given circumstances. And for Aquinas, that's ultimately the reason why we have the authority. Because the political community can't just sit and deliberate you know, ad infinitum. At some point, a decision has to be made and it has to be carried out. And that coordinates, then, the activity of all the members uh, towards the fulfillment of, of the goal. That's what law does. You know, law is the decision of the authority, not in opposition to the will of, of the governed, but as a way of assisting them and helping them to cooperate and work together, even if they don't all disagree on the particulars of the means, but at least finally a means has been chosen, and, and that's the one that governs and coordinates activity towards the achieving and the enjoying of the, of the common good. Uh, so lots of people can disagree <laughs> about the means. It's just finally one has to be chosen, and hopefully, you know, it's just. And we all have a part to play, especially in citizens of a democracy, to, to ensure, to help ensure that the, the choices made for us by our elected leaders uh, not only achieve the goals that we set for ourselves as a political community, but are in themselves prudent and just. Uh, and... Uh, and obviously, as, as people of faith, uh, we're going to bring a certain perspective uh, on that uh, to help us to see that it's good not just to render the other due prudently in terms of the, the exigencies of, of this life, but in view also of, of the life to come. That our rendering justice to our neighbor now and living as good citizens now, uh, building up the earthly city now has you know, eternal consequences uh, for us. Uh, and not just for us, but for our neighbors too. And that's, that's why we, we, we are active in the way that, that's appropriate for us as, as believers. But again, good people can disagree. Even believers can disagree as to the, the rightness or the prudence of any given means. And that's why we debate. That's why we fight. <laughs> Uh, hello. Uh, so this is related to, I guess, the question that just came before. But so you're talking about means and sort of people disagree about means. Mm -hmm. It seems that there's fundamental disagreements about the nature of the common good. So mm -hmm. this sort of pertains to material and formal cooperation with 
evil, especially when the common good is understood as something that's intrinsically disordered. Mm -hmm. How would you sort of describe the, the Christian's role in the voting place when you have hypothetically, let's say there's a party that endorses really horrific, mm -hmm. intrinsically disordered things and a party that generally doesn't in sort of a specific direct sense. Right. Uh, what is the Christian supposed to do sure. under those circumstances? And what, what is the nature of formal cooperation with evil mm -hmm. under those circumstances? Right. Thank so you. I think Aquinas can give us general um, principles to, to guide our, our thinking here. Um, on the one hand, I mean, the common good itself can never be inherently evil. I mean, if, if it's evil, it's not good by definition, therefore can't constitute uh, the common good of, uh, of a political community, which itself is just the, the good ordering of citizens one to another, uh, which is itself uh, the good to be achieved. You know, their, their, their cooperation and, uh, and peaceful living and cooperating together for the building up the sustenance and the defense of, of, of the political community. Um, so, first of all, things that are inherently evil uh, can't on the one hand shouldn't, but ultimately can't take a foothold and be described and defined as part of, of the common good. Short of that, though, when we talk about means for achieving the good, uh, yeah, some of them can be inherently immoral uh, and unjust. And it's obviously uh, been the human experience where political authority from time to time might pass and, uh, and, uh, and implement unjust laws. Uh, that's going to be dealt with uh, in different societies according to the type of regime that they have. Uh, in democratic regimes, uh, there are lots of uh, means of redress, uh, principally elections, but also you know, protests and, and things like that. But what Aquinas helps us to see, too, I mean, why do we do those things? Why do we oppose, then, uh, those kinds of laws? Uh, because ultimately, Aquinas says that they aren't law, ultimately, and that they can't be law. Ultimately, I mean, law has to be a principle, as its definition, a precept of reason for the common good, uh, you know, being the decision of the political authority and properly promulgated, which means everybody has to know about it. Uh, and if it fails in any one of those, you know, one of those four uh, categories, uh, Aquinas says that that the the law is just unjust and therefore not real law. Now, what do we do in those circumstances? Is again another question. You know, for prudence, how do we, how do we uh, react to that, or, or work to 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 right that wrong, or to, to correct that evil? Um, but for Aquinas, that's the, it's not a question at that point. That those kinds of laws simply just can't stand; they, they won't last long because they, they don't achieve the real purpose of uh, of law. That the good will ultimately prevail because the unjust law will introduce a kind of disorder within the political community that over time is just not tolerable. Um, it's interesting, I mean, Martin Luther King and you know, his uh, you know, protests and, uh, and demonstrations in the, uh, in the 1950s and 60s drew upon this, I mean, specifically from Aquinas. Uh, and so there's a whole, you know, especially in terms of the racial history of our country and the, the practice of uh, you know, nonviolent uh, demonstration uh, relied heavily on this principle that uh, that that laws that that enshrine unjust racial segregation are in fact ultimately not law, you know, uh, and therefore don't require the kind of obedience that would ordinarily be required 
in general justice. And what he advocated was not a violent insurrection against the regime, but nonviolent, non-participation, nonviolent demonstration against those, ultimately towards the repeal of those laws and the establishment of those that, that, are, that are in fact just, or at least more just than, than what you had before. There's a question in the back. Yeah. Thank you. Um, in our American context, is it imprudent to vote third party or to abstain from voting altogether? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, and certainly on the, the minds of lots of folks today. Um, I certainly think that those two options uh, remain valid options. I mean, in any kind of, generally in any kind of given circumstance uh, or in any general election, people are going to be asking that kind of question differently in different parts of the country because of the way our federal system is set up, um, you know, where um, certain parties, let's say, predominate in one part of the country or another, where I think citizens would have more of a freedom of, of casting a kind of protest vote or protesting by not voting or simply choosing not to participate. Um, that has to be done in prudence, given the fact that regardless of that vote or that protest, somebody is going to be elected. <laughs> you know, uh, and in our current context, unless things change dramatically in the next two weeks, uh, either the president will be reelected or Joe Biden will be elected president. One of those two things are, are going to happen. I mean, that's just given that's the, the system we we have. Um, and so people make their choice, you know, accordingly. Uh, and uh, so I don't, I'd have to think about that more, just about the particulars of, of how that might work. But I think it's important to realize that that's going to be a different kind of question for different citizens in different parts of the country, just given the local circumstances of how the Electoral College works, you know, how state representation works, and, and uh, the party apparatuses, you know, within those, within those states. So. Um, I think it is interesting that even within the electoral system that we have uh, in most jurisdictions, I mean, you can walk into the voting booth and vote for anyone, you know, I mean, through, through write-in. Uh, and so uh, it doesn't have to be, you know, one of the, the two obvious uh, choices. And so that's a legitimate, you know, choice, even recognized by, by the political authority as something good, as a, as a valid choice. Um, but in weighing the prudence of that, you know, in one's given particular kind of political moment, that's, yeah, we can talk about general principles, but I mean, that decision has to be made, you know, prudently by, by, by the individual. Yeah, one more question here. I was wondering if you could answer my question from earlier now. Okay, with, sure, with remind little, me of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to frame it with this kind of in, in mind now. Um, seems to me that regulative prudence, um, the way that I would want the policy to be ruled, the way that it ought to be ruled, mm -hmm. is not actually in accord with the way that the policy is ruled and mm -hmm. the way that like the common good is thought of. And 
just even like what constitutes the political body is, um, is for, what, what the end of it is for. In addition to that, I think that even in the context of democracy and American democracy, the Tocqueville talks about all these things that are necessary to preserve it, to protect against individualism, like you were talking mm -hmm. about earlier. And there, I think we would say that most of those institutions, if not all of them, are gone, uh, just kind of from the shift of society. So I guess my question is, do we still have an obligation to participate in the social context in which we find ourselves, even if it's not even, it's not what the nation was originally envisioned to be, if it's not a vision of a Catholic social good, mm -hmm. and if we are, still do have an obligation to do that, how do we do that and still do it in accord with regulative justice? Yeah. Excuse me. Yeah, I think part of the answer to that question is really to expand our own political imagination, uh, which is to say we are so focused on the national, kind of the top tier level of our politics, uh, where uh, we expect those who are elected to this city uh, in, as members of Congress uh, or as the president basically uh, to make all of the decisions that govern our, our national life, our, our political life. Um, there's a certain kind of truth to that because it is, the federal government is tasked with making kind of meta decisions for, for the country that affects the states and the local communities within the states. But that's not the only area in which, let's say, the voter exercises you know, his, uh, his sovereignty you know, as, as a voter or, or the collective sovereignty of the people as a voter. It's also at the state level. It's also at the county level. It's also at the level of, of one's, one's city. Uh, and I think that's a more or less unexplored aspect I think for us in, in our national political life that we, we underestimate just how much is done at the local level and how much can be done at the local level by more people that in fact uh, affects positively more people in their daily lives. That uh, the, the highest form of politics needn't be seen as, you know, at the, at the top federal level making meta policy for what's practically a continent of people. But, uh, but what you can do, you know, in terms of, um, you know, influencing the decisions of your local school board, uh, you know, or your local zoning commission, uh, that, that, in fact, in terms of day-to-day -day justice, uh, and the day-to-day -day unfolding of, of family life in our communities uh, might have a whole lot more, you know, to do uh, and to influence positively the daily lives of people than just focusing on you know, the policy that we would like the president to implement or the bill that we would like Congress uh, to pass. So it's not to say that we should ignore the federal, but it's just not in our own political imagination to think that, you know, sovereignty is exhausted uh, at that level. In fact, it's not. Um, and there's a whole lot that, that takes place at the, at the local level that, uh, that even just a few people, you know, can influence for, for the, the, the good of, of entire communities. And so I think especially folks of a younger generation, I mean, that, that could be, I mean, a real challenge. I mean, to, I mean, why is it that we know the names of, you know, the senators uh, from Alaska, but we don't know, you know, the name of your local school board representative, you know? Uh, shouldn't it be the other way around, just in terms of, you know, uh, who in fact has more, <laughs> uh, let's say, at least in the realm of the education of children, who has more more authority 
you know, in, in your area, you know. Uh, so I think that's part of, I mean, the American experiment that we have, this, uh, th these levels of, of authority that are, exist, that, that are exercised at, uh, uh, regionally, really. Um, but that for some reason we've, we've lost focus of, of the local as a, a real source of not just civic engagement, but real, the exercise of the people's sovereignty for, for the flourishing of their local communities. So I'd say a lot can be done, you know, just in terms of, okay, the state of our national politics is, yeah, not in a good way right now, but, uh, but there's a lot that perhaps can be done, at least to begin locally. Uh, and see, you know, moving up from there, what what the possibilities are for real, real change and, and real reform. Um, so we have a question actually from the live stream. Okay. And the question was, um, in voting, you know, choosing between two parties or two candidates, or however you would put it, um, what if your choice is between two grave evils? Mm -hmm. Right? Is is what what would Aquinas say about choosing, uh, can you choose the lesser of two evils? Right, yeah. Uh, I think so. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, if that's the choice <laughs> that, that you're given, uh, and however, you know, that needs to be calculated, hopefully, as objectively uh, as possible. I personally wouldn't see, you know, outside of a real possibility of, um, you know, electing a, a kind of, uh, through a kind of protest, you know, trying to, uh, you know, make sure that neither of them <laughs> is elected, if that's a possibility of all, at all. But outside of that possibility, I think then, yeah, we do our best to, to choose the lesser of, uh, of the two. I think John Paul II, as was said earlier, whose feast day is coming up, articulated something of this principle in Evangelium Vitae and just d helping citizens, especially in democracies, deal with uh, laws governing life uh, and the promotion and protection of life. Um, you know, he's, he can imagine and does imagine in that encyclical that there would be the situation where, let's say, you have a very permissive abortion law in a given, in a given jurisdiction. You have somebody who's running who's also pro-choice, but, uh, well, let's say you have two pro-choice candidates, one who is for the status quo and wants to preserve what is, but the other who sees that, you know, maybe some restrictions on the practice uh, you know, are for the benefit of, uh, of, of the common good, and rightly so, uh, that one can actively support and vote for that person or that policy, uh, even if it's an incremental step towards the establishing of a fuller exercise of, uh, or expression of justice. That, uh, that that's not a, a failed kind of vote or, or, uh, or cooperation uh, in evil in that sense. Because that is actively working in the circumstances as given for the promotion uh, of, of, of life. So I think that's, if we look at that and study you know, what John Paul II has to say uh, in that regard, that might help us to understand how we can apply that same principle to other, other areas, whether it be economics or questions of the environment, you know, things like that, that, uh, that also, uh, racial justice, I mean, that, that also have to be taken into, into consideration. I think we have time for one more question, if anyone has one. Okay, so my question has to do with, practically speaking, um, before going to the voting booth and trying to um, arrange for myself 
uh, a sort of hierarchy of values when voting. Mm -hmm. um, actually, I should take a step back. Can there be a hierarchy of values of regarding certain issues, you know, or um, is it just, you know, this certain issue of environment or economics or mm -hmm. social justice issue, that's important to me. Right. And then, you know, oh, well, this other thing is important to someone else and we can't, we can't argue about that. It's just mm -hmm. a matter of what's important. Yeah. Um, is that how it is or mm -hmm. can all of the issues together be hierarchically arranged so that when an individual does go to the voting booth, that there's some way to sort of say, okay, maybe there's like one issue or two or three issues that need to take precedence or mm -hmm. is it just kind of based on individual right. pre preference? So uh, yes, uh, to part of your, your answer, or to part of your question there, uh, are the goods that we have to seek uh, and help to instantiate for the common good hierarchically ordered, yes. Certain things are just more important than others. You know, uh, you know, um, you know providing a school uh, for, um, you know, uh, the local young population is probably more important than, I don't know, uh, you know, a, a third, you know, uh, Stadium for a you know professional baseball team, <laughs> you know, or something like that. You know, I mean, there, there are ways in which you know some certain things are just take greater priority. I mean, given the very nature. So the 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 point is, yes, the goods are hierarchically are hierarchically ordered. The question is, who does the ordering? So in your question, it seemed like you put the onus on the person. You know, that we've got to kind of rank all these things uh, in a certain order to make sense of them, and then try to do our best to. To, to vote accordingly. I think Aquinas would help us to step back from that and say, yes, the goods are hierarchically ordered, but we don't do the ordering. The goods are already ordered uh, among themselves according to God's own you know, plan and design and according to his providence. Uh, and therefore to study nature and the working uh, of nature and that illuminated by revelation we come to a truer sense of creation and how the goods provided us do among themselves already relate in a hierarchical relationship. And therefore, the purpose of wisdom is to recognize that ordering and the height of love then is to desire and to love those things according you know, to their already established providential you know, ordering. That's maturity, that's virtue you know, for Aquinas. I mean, not stepping back and ordering things according to our own lights, but allowing uh, the ordering of things to, to enlighten us uh, in, our, in, in every practical aspect of, uh, of life. The bishops, I think, here are, are try to be helpful, I mean, in this regard, in terms of the questions of the life issue, you know, so that there are certain means to the end which are just inherently evil and therefore never permissible, you know, like the taking of innocent human life. I mean, that can never be the means to any kind of end, whether it's you know, the termination of life in its developmental stage or the termination of life uh, at, at the end of one's lifespan. So abortion and euthanasia, uh, inherently evil, never permissible, uh, and laws, to get to the, you know, the question brought up uh, earlier, that, that permit those, those kinds of actions are inherently unjust and therefore, you know, 
require not only resistance on our part, but active opposition uh, for the sake of the whole, uh, for the good of the whole, that, that the church, the Christian, you know, opposes these kinds of, of laws. And we see a certain pri pri priority to them because the, the question of life is just so fundamental. You know, the question of physical life is, is, is an important one uh, because one has to have physical life in order to enjoy <laughs> the temporal goods of, of creation. Without that, uh, there is no citizen, there are no neighbors, uh, and therefore there's no sharing uh, of the common good with those whose lives we've, we've extinguished. Uh, it's an act of injustice uh, you know, to, to them, and, and the whole is therefore harmed you know, by, by those acts uh, inherently. In ways that, you know, whether the tax, tax level or tax rate of a certain country needs to be 25 or 30 percent, that just, that's an important question, but not of the same gravity, you know. Whether it's 80 percent or 20 percent, you know, still doesn't even approach the kind of gravity, uh, you know, as the life issues do. Uh, not because tax policy is unimportant, but because, again, of the, the way in which God's providential design of creation, the goods themselves are already ordered you know, one, one to another. Um, so I, I would begin there and begin, you know, to, to answer that question. It's, it's a modern temptation to think, yeah, we do the ordering, you know, and hope that everyone else does the same kind of ordering. Uh, Aquinas would say, no, um, we all receive creation as a gift. We live in creation as a gift. There's a certain wise ordering to things that we discover uh, and it's how we live virtuously as men and women made in the image and likeness of God that we recognize that ordering and more importantly love that ordering uh, and order, we order ourselves to the ordering, not, not, the, not the other way around. Father Aquinas, thank you very much. Okay, thank you.